right, we are back. I'm Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. And uh, that was music by Stacy Robin with Follow, who I love. And uh, standing by to join us to wrap up the show is Ian Scheffler. And he's going to talk about his book, Cracking the Cube, Going Slow to Go Fast and Other Unexpected Turns in the World of Competitive Rubik's Cube Solving. Hi, Ian. Hi, Janine. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for having me. So what inspired you to write this book? So, um, interestingly enough, I was born in the 90s. I didn't even live to see the first rise of the cube in the 80s. But oh. about 11 years ago, I went to this very unusual summer camp uh, that Lady Gaga and Mark Zuckerberg attended when they were little nerds. <laughs> and on the very first day, I happened to sit next to the greatest Rubik's Cube solver on the planet. He was a teenager from San Francisco who was later hired to teach Will Smith for that movie, The Pursuit of Happiness, where he famously solves a Rubik's Cube. Mm-hmm. And um, years later, I learned that this kid and his brother were instrumental in creating the World Cube Association, which is basically the FIFA of Rubik's Cubes, only less corrupt because they have less money. Oh, wow. What led up to what, what you're doing now with the book? Oh, okay. Well, um, basically, I said, can I write about it? And my old friend got kind of irritated and said, well, aren't you going to compete? And I thought on the one hand, maybe they want my registration fee at being a cash-strapped nonprofit, but he had a really legitimate point, which is how can you try to wrap your head around this phenomenon of the rebirth of the cube? Because it's undeniably back in this very interesting way. You can see it everywhere from world events where it played a crucial role in Edward Snowden leaking documents uh, to, the, to the press. Mm-hmm. to, as a metaphor for the Middle East, to, you know, literally it's it's now viral on the Internet all the time. Just the other week, actually, the world record was lowered to an astonishing 4.74 seconds in that video, despite Whoa. all the election coverage has gone viral. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. So I wanted to try to understand from the inside out what is it about this diminutive plastic toy that, you know, you might easily be dismissed as kind of an 80s totem or some kind of throwback that, is having a new life, because if you go to a Rubik's Cube competition, it's not people who were around in the 80s. It's generally young people. It's people from all over the world. There's so many competitions now run by the WCA that there are more than there are days in the year. Um, They happen on every continent but Antarctica. Um, And so my old friend said, you know, how can you understand this unless you do it? And that precipitated this journey of me trying to solve the cube under 20 seconds, which is sort of like the four-minute mile of doing it. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Well, it, um, there were a lot of ups and downs. There's a whole chapter in the book called Cuber's Thumb about this big setback uh, where I got injured, believe it or not. Cuber's Thumb is a real medical condition. It was so okay. described in the New England Journal of Medicine, a pretty august publication if ever there was one. And um, I had to relearn to solve the cube, and it turned almost into the karate kid, but sort of inverted where a lot of people younger than me were teaching knew what I was doing wrong and, and how to do it better. Um, because solving a cube is, is, to my surprise, as I learned in the book, it's about so much more than math or logic or really the kind of things we associate with it. It's, it's a much more meditative pursuit in line with doing sports or martial arts or even playing music. Well, what I found so unbelievable that there, there are, what, 43.2 quintillion possible permutations yeah, that's true. That's a very hard number to wrap one's head around because a quintillion is a billion billions. I mean, you know, early advertisements for the cube actually assumed that folks wouldn't know what a quintillion was. So they said things like, you know, billions and billions of combinations. But 
that that's as big an error as saying that Bill Gates has a bunch of pennies, you know, because <laughs> yes. you're off by about a billion. Yes. So you had a childhood friend, Toby. Do you want to talk about him? Yeah. So Toby is that boy I mentioned from summer camp who taught me to do it. And, you know, he, he most people nowadays, if they learn to solve it, they learn on the Internet. And, you know, the, the book has an appendix that is sort of a guide to the guide. So if folks read it and they want to get involved, they can go check this out and look things up on YouTube. But, you know, he, he taught me how to do it. And he's, he's a very competitive guy. So it makes sense that he would egg me on to do this myself. He recently got married, and he and his wife eschewed the first dance and replaced it with a combination of Rubik's Cubes and Jiu-Jitsu, because those are their <laughs> two passions. And they literally dragged out a wrestling mat in front of the whole wedding party, put on their martial arts uniforms, and the rule of this contest was whoever gets the other to submit first or solve the cube wins. And uh, with his now wife choking him out in the leg hold, my old friend Toby oh managed to God. solve it one-handed. That is hysterical. <laughs> yeah, and it's on YouTube. People can go check it out. I was just going to ask you if there's a YouTube clip, because this is so funny, one of a kind. Yes, that that is on YouTube, and I can post a tweet about it later if folks want to check that out. Oh, good, good. So did you ever imagine, I mean, you would be writing a book like this? No, I didn't. It was this very much down the rabbit hole experience, because, you know, Rubik's Cube, is it, it was almost this experience of the sixth sense of, like, I see dead people, but I see Rubik's Cubes, because... It's so baked into the popular culture that we don't even notice it until we look for it. I mean, when I started looking for it, I was suddenly seeing it everywhere on television, in movies, in journalism, in, in illustrations, in newspapers. And there's this whole world, really, that the cube encapsulates. I mean, there, there's a secret history to it, which I talk about in the book. The, the man who invented it is actually still alive. His name is Erno Rubik. It's a possessive Rubik's Cube, like Einstein's theory of relativity, um, and if you talk to him, as I did, he refers to it as my cube, because it's in fact his. Um, and he's sort of like the Willy Wonka of Eastern Europe. He's very wealthy, very reclusive, and very brilliant. And it took me two years to get a one-hour lunchtime interview with him, but that's one of the highlights of, of the book, is getting to meet Mr. Rubik. But, you know, to go back to your question, no, I, I never imagined in my wildest dreams that one could even write a book about this world, because I just didn't know this world existed. What were some things that were big surprises to you about this world? Um, so I think the biggest is, is the one I alluded to earlier, that, that solving a Rubik's Cube is not about the things we typically associate with it. Because, you know, when you think about the Rubik's Cube, you think about math, about it being hard to solve, about it being a sort of nerdy thing. But if you're actually trying to solve it fast, it becomes much more like a sport. I mean, you can go to a competition now, and it even looks like a sport. The best cubers are sponsored. They get sent to competitions by puzzle designers. They have jerseys that look like NASCAR tops with stickers and labels on them. Mm. And what the subtitle of the book, Going Slow to Go Fast, alludes to is that, you know, the, the sensation of solving a Rubik's Cube fast, what it requires is really that same, what psychologists call the flow state, that dancers experience, that musicians experience, that athletes experience. Um, because I heard for a long time from the best cubers in the world that the faster they went, the slower it felt. And it didn't make sense to me, you know, if you're going faster, you should be going faster. But in reality, um, the faster you get at solving Rubik's Cube, it's this very meditative process of every passing second becomes so pregnant with activity because you're potentially doing 10 different things in that second that you didn't know you were going to do because every solve of the cube is different. You know, those, that, those 43 quintillion possibilities mean that you're never going to do the same thing from start to finish in your whole life. It's almost like playing chess at the speed of ping pong. Right. And that really requires going to a very interesting place that, you know, your daily activities don't really take you. 
Is it that you go slow to analyze your every move to make it a smart move? Well, that's, that's part of it, because you don't want to sort of do something fast that was sort of a mistake and then have to go back to correct it. But it's really that when you're in that moment, when you're in the zone, you know, like mm-hmm. of solving a cube or catching a touchdown or doing a pirouette, you could be going very fast. Like, in fact, you know, that recent world record of 4.74 seconds, you know, if you looked at it, it might just look like someone was, the guy was having a seizure from the wrist down because his hands don't stop moving the whole time. You know, and he does probably 50 different things in those, in those 4.7 seconds. But it's really that your sensation of time actually changes. Like, time kind of dilates. It's a very heady, um, sort of um, almost like a psychedelic feeling. It's unbelievable to watch. I'm going to have to get on YouTube and watch some of this because it's, it's something I can't even get my brain around. Yeah, and I mean, really, we've only scratched the surface because there's 17 different events, which include everything from solving one-handed to solving blindfolded, solving with your feet. It's a pretty crazy world. Where can people find out more about this? So if they want to learn more about the book, they can check out my website, ianshuffler.com. And if they want to learn more about competitions and maybe even attend one, they should go to worldcubeassociation.org, which is the headquarters of the WCA. They could just sit and observe and watch all the competitors, you know. They totally can. Yeah. Spectators are always welcome, and anyone can sign up to compete. So long as you can solve the cube in under 10 minutes, you will be allowed to officially do it. I wonder how long these people train to do a four-second solution. Well, I can tell you, because the, the man who achieved that, Mats Falk, is a featured character in the book, and he's been solving Rubik's Cubes competitively for about 10 years. I mean, I've solved the cube about 15,000 times, and I'm, I average around 18 seconds. And, I mean, I would assume he's done it over 100,000 times conservatively. What would you attribute your skill to because of your background in math and science? Um, well, so there's a lot of folks who do math and science who are drawn to the cube, but it's certainly not a requirement. I mean, one of my, one of, a friend I've made in this world is a, a German college student who's one of his favorite things to do is just to sit down and strum Bob Dylan on his guitar. He, he's not really a math person at all. Rubik's Cube is sort of one of those things that, that Margaret Wertheim, a really excellent science journalist, has called embodied mathematics, where, you know, if you're throwing a baseball or you're dancing, you're, you're embodying geometrical principles or trigonometric principles. And when you're solving a cube, you're embodying mathematical principles, and you're sort of doing math even if you don't realize it. So understanding math you know, can allow you to solve the cube, but it's not a total requirement. It, it really comes down to the things that make you good at music or at art, which is this kind of disciplined practice. Well, I was just thinking, for anybody who wants to pursue something like this, this is the same discipline as sitting down and practicing piano or guitar or anything. It's focus. Exactly, yeah. I used to play a lot of music, actually. I did a lot of classical music growing up, and it, it struck me how similar this was in that Every solve is almost like an improvisation in, you know, a solo, mm-hmm. because you've got your, you know, a soloist has their chords, their scales, they've got their toolkit, but they're always changing it, right? That's the whole point of improv- improvisation. And it's also kind of like sight reading, because it's a new thing every time. Right. And so when you're solving a cube, you've got that toolkit, you know, certain algorithms or patterns that you might use, but you're never going to use them in the same pattern or same way. You're always thinking on your feet. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to wrap, unfortunately, but wow, this has been really intriguing. I want to thank you so much for calling in, Ian. Thank you so much for having me, Janine. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That was Ian Scheffler calling in to talk about his book, Cracking the Cube, Going Slow to Go Fast, and Other Unexpected Turns in the World of Competitive Rubik's Cube 
solving. If you missed any part of that of this segment, it'll be up on my blog uh, probably by, I don't know, a few hours after we wrap. And uh, that's it for me today. Uh, that was a fast-paced, power-packed show, four guests. So standing by is Sheldon Abbott with Cure for the Blues. And I'll be back next week. Have a great Monday, everybody. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Mm-hmm.